presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, American Symphony. From Academy Award nominee Matthew Heineman, both IndieWire and Variety have named it one of the best documentaries of the year. A Hollywood Reporter says American Symphony is a moving love story, a celebration of art, resilience, and the mutability of the human spirit. American Symphony is available now on Netflix. Do you have a brief logline of the film? The logline of the film is that leading female scholars share the journey through history to understand how racist ideas were developed, deployed, disseminated, and enshrined in American society and American history. This is a book by the great Ibram X. Kendi, a New York Times bestseller, 541 pages strong. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Roger Ross Williams, the director of Stamped from the Beginning. Stamped from the Beginning had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. It went on to screen at the Chicago International Film Festival, Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival, and numerous other festivals. It has been shortlisted for the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature and is available for streaming on Netflix. Academy Award-winning director Roger Ross Williams is best known for his documentaries Music by Prudence, Life Animated, God Loves Uganda, The 1619 Project, which recently won the Emmy for Outstanding Documentary Nonfiction Series, and his first fiction feature, Cassandra, which premiered at Sundance in 2023. Roger's film, same title as the book by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, Stamp from the Beginning, is obviously inspired by that book and relies heavily on that book, is its own creation. One of the great things about talking to Roger was hearing all the ways that he and his team put their own original stamp on this material. As we were talking, and even after the interview, it really struck me that so many of the things Roger was talking about in our interview really cut to the core of, well, what is a director? What does a director do? And what makes a great director? And it really comes down to choices and making the kind of choices that complement the content and bring it to a whole nother level. Roger talks about going with his gut and sticking by his guns, having great creative partners and higher-ups who believe in you. I learned a lot from this film and a lot from Roger's discussion of his creative process. Stamped is one of those films that feels important, but it doesn't take itself so seriously that it fails to explore how humor can come from being resilient and as a tool of survival. Roger's varied career certainly exhibits a lot of resilience and creativity, and it was a pleasure to have him here on Top Docs. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on X or Twitter also at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Roger Ross Williams, the director of Stamped from the Beginning. Roger Ross Williams, welcome to Top Docs. Great to be here, Ken. Our audience is only hearing this, but it's great to see you again, and congratulations on the film. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful, interesting ride since the Toronto International Film Festival where it premiered. So I want to jump right in and 
talk about the very first time we hear you off camera in the film, which is you saying the words, can you please tell me what is wrong with black people? This is a question you ask of some of your scholars. And speaking as an audience member, it's a bit disarming, perhaps, to hear that question being asked of these powerhouse black women scholars. I just would love to hear more about what inspired you to open the film with that question? Well, good. I'm glad it got your attention because that's exactly why I asked that question, because I want to grab your attention. I want it to be provocative and I want you to be like, wait a minute, what is this film about? What's going to happen? This is really interesting. It's the last line of the book. So the last line of the book is the only thing wrong with Black people is that you think something is wrong with Black people. That is the definitive statement about really what stamps from the beginning is really about. At one point, we ended the film with that statement, but Jean Chen, one of our great editors, she'd given me notes on the film and she gave me this idea to start with the question and then answer it at the end. And I was like, why didn't I think of that? That's brilliant, brilliant Jean Chen. And it works so well because my goal, and I think and hope we achieve this, is by the end of the film, the question is answered. That the only thing wrong with Black people is that you think something is wrong with Black people. I think that it is answered through the course of the film. And that's one of many reasons why it's so great. Let's go back to your source material, which is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's book, Stamp from the Beginning, which I think was first published in 2016, a seminal year in American history. It's divided up into five parts, each of which is tied to a major character in American history, what he calls his tour guides through the landscape of racial ideas through five periods in American history. Several of these five figure quite prominently in your movie. In fact, one, Angela Davis, is interviewed in the movie. Yeah. But some of the others are hardly mentioned at all. And so I just was wanting to hear about how you figured out, in general, how to take Dr. Kendi's schematic and turn it into the movie that you wanted to make, and then how you figured out which of these five to focus on. Well, you know, in the movie, we... Yes, we do tell the stories, but it's really a movie about ideas, about these racist ideas. And the racist ideas are broken down into what I call nine lies about Black people. And I came up with the nine lies structure, which are chapter headings in the film. And I came up with that after, you know, a long journey. As you make these films, you have these milestones. But it started with my brilliant writer, David Teague. David Teague has been the, the sort of secret behind many great documentaries. He was the editor on Life Animated, which was nominated for an Oscar, actually. And he was my co-writer on Cassandra, which is my first scripted film that premiered at Sundance last year. David and I began early on after I optioned the book with Netflix, I went to Netflix. You know, here's the backstory a little bit is that I read the book in the middle of George Floyd, Racial Reckoning 2020. Ibram X. Kendi had the number one New York Times bestseller for that entire year called How to Be an Anti-Racist. 
but he also had halfway down the top 10 list stamped from the beginning. And I was like, oh my God, this man has two books in the New York Times top 10 list. Two, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which I feel like everyone in America read during the racial reckoning, was really more dealing with how we process what's going on and how he processed it. But Stamped was a deep dive into how we got to where we got to in America. This place of the insurrection of Trump, of the immense killing of Black people by police through police violence, Karenism, all of it, just racially how we got there. And we were all protesting and marching in the streets, but we didn't really understand what led us to this place. And when I read that book, it opened my eyes. So when David and I set out to create this, and David is the writer, we thought about the big ideas around it. The big idea being that there is a racist idea, and we wanted to go back to the beginning, to Portugal in the 1400s, and then there is resistance to that racist idea, and then the racist idea morphs. And racist ideas are often disseminated through popular culture. So we wanted to use the tools of popular culture to really show people how these racist ideas are put in our heads in a way that we may not even notice, we may not even recognize through books. And popular culture back in the day were paintings. So we decided to create these VFX scenes on a green screen stage with actors but paint them, rotoscope them, animate them with VFX in the art style of the time. Those were the sort of big ideas. And then it was like, what are the big ideas? The creation of blackness. That was something that was a racist idea that was created. The creation of whiteness is a racist idea that was created. Assimilationism. So we take you through the big, it's about, it wasn't, the book is so dense, but this was about the big ideas just to really educate people on what these racist ideas are and how they're used to infiltrate our minds and the way we think about Black people. I'm glad you brought up the 1400s in Portugal, because I'm going to get into that in just a second. But before that, I was wondering, you know, you optioned the book, you said with Netflix, you and David are working on it together. Were you collaborating directly or, in or indirectly with Ibram X. Kendi, or were you guys just working on your own? He's in the film, obviously, for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. No, we were working on our own pretty much. The great thing about Dr. Kendi is that he realizes that this is not his medium. He's a writer, he's an academic, and he left it up to us to interpret his work. He was very generous like that in that he did not stand in our way he helped us when we needed help with the scholarship, with inaccuracies. Well, you know, that isn't exactly correct. You know, this is correct. Obviously, we had to get the scholarship right. And he would come in and give us notes. But it wasn't until the end. He let me really run with it creatively. And for me, it was about taking all the tools I had as a director. And I think that everything that I did in my career led me to this film. And I think that because I had shot my scripted film, Cassandro, before I went into production on Stamped, I had a different sort of 
way of seeing storytelling and filmmaking and a different level of confidence. And I was able to embrace the VFX actor scenes and the animation scenes in a whole new way. So he really just let me have complete creative freedom. Let's get to Portugal in the 1400s. And watching the first part of the film, which as an aside is really engrossing, you do go back to the 1400s and it struck me, just my personal take, how maybe in the telling the story of racial ideas in America, one of the things that has perhaps been de-emphasized in the telling of the story of slavery in this country has been the transatlantic slave trade itself. We focus on the institutions of slavery, the plantations, slave owners, and so on. But the trade part of this story, sometimes I think it's glossed over. So for me, you know, it was a revelation to hear this story of Gomez Zurara and Prince Henry, the navigator of Portugal, which frankly, I knew nothing about. Can you briefly describe that relationship and how it frames so much of what would follow in terms of racial ideas? Well, before Prince Henry got in the game, he was in the game, but he was in the game with Eastern European Slavs. That's the root of the word slave, is Slav. Uh, Slavs from Eastern Europe could blend in with the population because they were white. So he wanted to get in on the African slave trade because they couldn't blend in within the population. And you can tell who were the slaves and who were not the slaves. But in order to do that, he had to come up with a narrative, a story that would pass muster with the church, because no one wants to think of themselves as evil, rapist, murderous people. They want to think they're doing good work, but he had to come up with a narrative. So he hired a writer, a chronicle of the court named Gomez Zarara, to write a book. And the book said basically that slavery was good for Africans because it civilized them. It brought them into civilization. It was a good thing. And this book became a bestseller. And country, Western European countries then used this book to justify their own slave trade. But it was Portugal who was the first. The people in Africa, there were, as we know, there were kings and queens and great kingdoms and people from all different types of languages and complexions. And he lumped them all into one and called them all black. And that's what we call the invention of blackness. And hence the European black slave trade began. And while it was ad adopted all across Europe, the place that really embraced slavery in a way that they built a country is America. Yeah, I think it's no coincidence that the story of slavery is a story about a story. Narrative plays such a huge part in all of this, because certainly science doesn't. Yeah, often racial ideas are stories. You have to create a narrative around these, because these are ideas, right? These are lies. That's why I call it nine lies about Black people. These are lies. And at a time right now when truth is under attack in America, you know, in a big way, books like A Stamp from the Beginning are banned. You have to create a narrative around these lies over and over again. That's why The Nine Lies is so effective. So lies about Black people, whether it's being criminals or drug dealers or whatever lie that was created, and it was perpetuated by popular culture, by commercials and media and art and Hollywood, the biggest perpetuator of racial lies about Black people. 
no one does it better than Hollywood. A key turning point that you cover in the film is Bacon's Rebellion. And this yeah. is one of several things in the film, which I feel in retrospect, I should have learned about in school, but somehow it, it got missed in my textbook, or maybe it was a paragraph. But as you tell it in this film, this is a significant moment in American history because it showed what was possible when indentured white servants fought side by side with enslaved Africans against wealthy landowners. But yeah. then the aftermath of the rebellion leads to the whole idea of race being legislated through the Virginia slave codes and so on and so forth, which effectively put a wall between white servants and enslaved black people. What are some of the lessons that we can take from Bacon's Rebellion? I think Bacon's Rebellion is the beginning of this idea that being white is a privilege and that no matter what your status is in America, what your social economic status is in America, you are always better than black people. So the poorest uh, white families, white people, they can proudly fly their Confederate flags which is a symbol for whiteness, and claim their whiteness and feel superior, even though they are also being, you know, they're really a victims of power. They're really victims of capitalism. And Black people have nothing to do with their status. And it does not benefit them to believe these racist ideas, but they believe the narrative that they are better because that narrative began in Bacon's Rebellion when certain rights, and it was brilliant of the landowners to divide because it's dangerous. They were way outnumbered if the white indentured servants and the slaves got together. We flash forward a lot in the film, and this is something we learned under Martin Luther King, who, when he began to bring together poor whites and Black people in America, he became very dangerous and enemy number one, and then eventually was assassinated. That's right. The Poor People's Campaign was yeah. really about to be launched at that time. Yes. You alluded to your visual style in this film, and it is incredibly eclectic. You use actors with green screen and VFX. There's another kind of animation, more of a sort of black and white style that's used. There's tons of movie clips, news footage, smartphone footage, and archival. And you mentioned that you were working on your scripted feature at this time. And you mentioned that everything in your career up to this point kind of led to this film. Yeah. But I wanted to hear more about, you know, it's not like you just say, okay, here's how I, I want to do this. I feel like there must be some level of experimentation, trial and error, and just feeling your way through this kind of vast visual landscape that you ended up with. So can you just talk about that creative process? Yeah, I mean, documentaries are all made built in the edit room and there's a writing process and a process that happens in the edit room. This because there's so many elements. I think David did an amazing job on the script. I think when I say everything led to this, I think that I gained a certain amount of confidence from making Cassandro that I bought to the set and to this. And I think a lot, oftentimes a problem occurs when you're not quite sure of your ideas or you don't quite believe in your ideas. When you're making a scripted film, you have to make a million decisions very fast and you have to be confident about those decisions because you have an army of people who are executing those decisions. I came from the Cassandra set onto the stamp set 
and I felt confident about my creative decisions and I stuck by my creative decisions and I believed in them and therefore others believed in it and were able to execute them in a way that really worked because we all were on the same page. It's all about getting everyone on the same page. There were definitely bumps along the way. Looking at early cuts, it was not the, always we had the animation and the VFX and the actors, but the other parts were not exactly coming together and it was really long and there was too many stories and too many ideas. And it was about simplifying it. And my editors, John Fisher and Francesca Shatner, they came to me, they were working on other projects. I said, take a shot at Bacon's Rebellion. And each of them worked together. They worked on this, on Bacon's Rebellion and they gave me what is the, now the editing style of the film. They gave me this fast moving needle drop, playing with time back and forth, really connecting the idea, the raceless idea to the present day and also great bites and archives. And, and I watched it. And I remember I was like blown away. I was like, this is it. This is the style of the film. And I remember Elisa Payne, who's the producer, who's the incredible producer of this film, along with David Teague. This is also his producing, I think, debut. We went to my office and I started to needle with like ideas around this style. And I said, wait, each of these can be a, a, a lie about Black people. Then I like nine lies. I love catchy things. I was like, nine lies, nine lies. And then we wrote down, I remember we were all, fr it was one of those creative moments where you can feel the creative energy flowing and there's like a flow chart and someone's writing down, we're writing down the lies on a big board and we're like writing down the nine lies and we like, and then we got it. And we're like, and then what leads us to an anti-racist society, which is the hope. It has to end in this positive, hopeful thing because Kenzie's book ends in a hopeful way. And, you know, what does an anti-racist society look like? And then we were, I was like, this is it. We got the film. This happened after uh, two years of experimentation and hit and miss. And then I called Chloe Bai, who's our executive at Netflix. Netflix was very hands-off and they believed in me. And I think because I had proven to them that I could deliver and that I had a production company that had done a lot and given a lot of voice to a lot of young BIPOC filmmakers. This is Francesca, the editor's first feature film to the young Black woman editor. So imagine. And when I told her she's going to get editing credit, she's going to edit the film, she was in tears. No one had given her the opportunity to show what she could do. And a lot of these young Black creatives hadn't gotten that opportunity. And so Chloe came in and I showed her the scene and I took her through the nine lies and she was like, I love it. Brilliant. Go with it. And then we went with it. I'm so glad that you kind of made the distinction between, you know, what I was asking about, which was the visual style, the mise-en-scene of the film and the editing. Because I have a question here and literally as you were talking, chills were going up and down my spine because in my follow-up question about the editing... I specifically was going to mention that cut from Bacon's Rebellion to the archival footage of the KKK and talk about how amazing it is in terms of your moving ahead in time by centuries, but because the themes are so strongly connected, there's this incredible continuity in that cut. And I just want to highlight that for everyone that this is brilliantly edited and it isn't just that 
things flow well. It's the ideas, the editing emphasizes the ideas and it's all of a piece. That was what really took the most time once we had this doll is to really hone in on that and get those ideas really that really connect in a powerful way. So when we're in the section on Black women, when you get to Maya Angelou's powerful poem, it just hits you and builds to that. You understand where that began and then you build to that. And when the tear flows down Maya Angelou's face, it's just, and the Phyllis Wheatley moment. The Phyllis Wheatley moment is something that has resonated with so many people and so many Black people, not just Black women, but Black women, Black men. And taking you through Kendry Brown Jackson and Anita Hill and all these women who have these Phyllis Wheatley moments to prove themselves. But the original, being this young, brilliant poet, it just hits you in the gut. Phyllis Wheatley and Harriet Jacobs also, I would add, are two revelations for me in your film. Specifically, their incredible contributions to the literary canon and how impactful their work has been. You mentioned the, the Phyllis Wheatley moment, but can you back up and just talk a bit about Phyllis Wheatley, her contributions through her poetry? Phyllis Wheatley, before the landowners, the enslavers, the colonialists, the founding fathers, they wanted Black bodies for labor. Obviously, they didn't want Black bodies to create art or believe they could create art. So Phyllis Wheatley, this young, formerly enslaved girl from Africa, who was snatched from Africa, brought to America, that, that she was writing poetry, that she was so brilliant, it just was not believable. So they, uh, like a Senate hearing, they put together a panel, including John Hancock, whose name is on our money, and they grilled her. Are these poems yours and they grilled her and they ruled that the poems were hers and so we call it a phyllis wheatley moment where black women always have to prove themselves to the white male power elite of their own brilliance and their own worth and all the women contributors of course i asked each of them what is your phyllis wheatley moment they may have all had a phyllis wheatley moment so it's it was emotional for them and that was what was really important about all these interviews is that I said to them, I don't want your lecture or your academic speak. You do this work because it's personal to you, because you're a Black woman. That's why you do work around racism. I want to hear why it's personal to you. I want to hear your personal stories. And it was incredibly emotional interviews and tears and just powerful. And they said they had never been asked like that. So for them to tell their own Phyllis Wheatley moment you know, honoree in academia that she has to go through. We're experiencing a Phyllis Wheatley moment in academia right now with Harvard and Professor Gay. That's something that has really resonated very strongly with audiences. I wasn't clear when I saw that scene if the Phyllis Wheatley moment was a thing or if that was a Roger Ross Williams original question. It's a Roger Ross Williams thing. Well, you know, I look, there's a team of us. But this is something that we created out of the film. And I think it's really resonated with audiences and with people in a, in a really powerful way. So yes, I can now own the Phyllis Wheatley moment. <laughs> yes, you can. It's brilliant. It's poignant, but it's also 
there's a little bit of humor in it too, the humor sure. of recognition. And I would just add for the audience that this film does have these moments of humor, oh. of shared recognition, of common experience. It had to have humor. I, anything I do has to have humor in it. I don't think it would, if, if we could take a barrage of pain for 90 minutes, and it is a tight 90 minutes. But for me, it's not like these racist ideas all come with this heavy, in this way that is the uh, white supremacist march or the KKK. They come in the form of television and entertainment and ways that you don't expect that are often funny, often at the expense of Black people. So the jokes and the humor and also the lightness of how we are so resilient, we respond to it in a way that that helps us to survive. So it has to have humor and lightness. And a lot of people, I think, are afraid to watch the film because they're afraid they can't deal with the heaviness of it. But it's not heavy. It's, I always say it's like a fun ride through racism. And uh, people, you know, people like maybe get a little offended by that, but it's true. It was my challenge as a filmmaker to make it really watchable, but not diluted. The messages and the points are really powerful, but they're really engaging and entertaining in a way, but not diluted, that the message is still the message. And one of the key ways that the film is so engaging is through your scholars and the interviews you do with them. Besides Dr. Kendi, all of the scholars in the film, I believe, are Black women. Yes. Is that correct? That is correct. And as diverse as this group is in terms of age, areas of scholarship, and so on, you know, it is striking that they're all Black women. Yes. Why did you decide to include Black women scholars in the film pretty much exclusively? It was a political choice. It was a choice that was a statement within itself. When I was handed a list of scholars and historians and academics, you know, they were the same old people. A lot of them white men or women, and not to dismiss them for sort of being white, but I mean, what I noticed is a pattern. Elisa Payne, the producer, handed me a list, and I said, wait a minute, a lot of the people doing work around racism were Black women. I noticed this right away at Harvard and Yale and, and Howard. And I was like, what if, you know, you have these moments when you're directing. I love this about directing is because you have these, you don't necessarily, I was going to say, you don't necessarily know their breakthrough moments, but actually I do know that they're breakthrough moments, right? That's the confidence you gain as a director when you get experience. And I was like, what if all of our experts are black women? And everyone was like, oh, and I was like, it's a statement within itself because Black women have always been at the forefront of the resistance. They have always done the work. Often Black leaders, Black men have been assassinated, whether it's Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. Or, but it has been Black women who have been doing the work. And Black women have always been the ones at the forefront saving democracy, as we see in the, from the current election and Stacey Abrams in Georgia and Black women and all the way back in history going back to whatever, Harriet Tubman. And so I said, let's make this statement. And there was pushback. One of the only times that I got some pushback from Netflix, but I'm confident enough now as a director that I was like, I'm not budging. Too bad. 
I, I did not let, there was a period in my career probably where I would have just folded and said, okay, we'll have Doris Kearns, Goodwin, and all the usual people. And, um, and I didn't, and I held strong and they backed off. And now everyone's embraces it, but you have to believe and stick by your creative choices and your creative ideas to be a strong director. And I, I learned that over the years. And that's why I say everything led me to this film because there was periods in my career, I would not have had the strength to stand up to the broadcaster or the buyer. And I think it's also a testament to what you bring to this project and your team brings to the book. It's an additional strength. Yeah. And I think it's something you notice as an audience member. Maybe it's more subliminal, but I think you're certainly glad to have these people tell us this history because they do an amazing job. Yeah. And just to speak to that, when I went after this book, I have to give credit to another exec, one of our executive producers, Mara Brock Akil, who has a deal at Netflix and is a powerful creator of culture and scripted series and Girlfriends and Being Mary Jane. These are classic Black programs. Because she's always centered her work around Black women, part of this idea, probably having discussions with Mara about the film and how we were going to create and execute this film, I'm sure was hugely influential in that decision because Mara has always been, you know, not only is she a strong Black woman, but she's also held up the stories of Black women. And I think that was always at the forefront. And Mara has been an incredible partner throughout this journey. It was interesting because she comes from the scripted world and she wanted to make a crown. She wanted to make a scripted version of Stamped. But Netflix wasn't going to pay for the money for a crown. So they bought us together. And I think it was a great marriage. And most of the people who worked on this were Black women. You know, this history goes way back to the 1400s. But what I was curious about is you began to focus more on the last 50 years of racially charged policies like the law and order rhetoric of Nixon and Reagan and Clinton and Trump and others and the war on drugs and police violence against black people and the racial reckoning of 2020. This also dovetails with the world that you grew up in. How, if at all, did things change for you as the director when the images and the stories you were depicting weren't from 500 or 100 years ago, but happened in your lifetime? The revelation for me was that it was all connected to the past. So it is the slave patrols where law and order comes out of. Being Black itself is illegal. And those slave patrols where anyone could arrest anyone who was Black just for the sure just because they're black is what this idea of law and order came out of and it's a it's just a code word for black so for me those clear connections to the past that we make in the film just helps me to explain today when i encounter a a karen and i encounter many of them I understand that this comes out of Bacon's Rebellion and these codes for white people and these, this sense that you have a privilege just for being white. I understand where law and order and policing of Black people comes from. I understand the creation of ghettos and criminalizing just Black life and Black culture, even the way Black people talk or dress or act. I understand all of this 
and how it started and how it's been perpetuated throughout history, through Hollywood movies. And now I see Hollywood movies differently. You know, I see King Kong totally differently. I see Rocky. I see, we all know Birth of a Nation was the beginning, the first big Hollywood movie screened at the White House for Woodrow Wilson, a famous racist, celebrating the Klan. And we know that movie was made over and over and over again in different ways. I now see it. It was like The Matrix. It was like the world opened up to me and it made everything happening now make sense because I still have that sinking feeling every time a cop, I see a police officer. If the cop car is behind me, I'm like, shit, I could die. Every time I see a cop and probably all black people have this reaction, our, our heart starts racing and we're like, uh-oh, this could be the wrong time. This could be the time it happens to me. So I understand that, which maybe helps me to explain it to others. And my way of explaining it and helping others understand it is through film and documentary. That's why I made this documentary. That's why I actually wanted this documentary to be on Netflix. I mean, I could have made it independently. I went to Netflix because I, I was like, I need to reach the most people I can possibly reach. That's Netflix audience. And then Netflix gets a lot of flack for being the biggest. And also people say Netflix doesn't do serious issue documentaries. Well, for me, you can't get any more serious than racism in America. And they did it. And it made the top 10 in its first week of release. It sends a message to Netflix. It's funny because I was out at the Governor's Awards and the um, Emmys, because uh, another project I did won an Emmy. And I ran into Ted Sarandos and he said, this sends a message that people want th this material. People want a deep, Ted Sarandos himself said this to me, that our audiences crave serious social issue films. So it's a game changer for them. And that's what I want to do is be a game changer. <laughs> I think that this film is a game changer. I think you're a game changer. I would urge everyone who hasn't seen the film yet, when you see this on your Netflix homepage, click on it. It's incredibly engaging. It is fast paced. And as you say, people have a thirst and a desire for these stories and this information. Dr. Kendi wouldn't have been on the New York Times bestseller twice if that wasn't the case. And that's how this whole project, this film began. And I think your film is further proof of that. So thank you so much, Roger, for being here today. And congratulations on your Emmy with the 1619 Project. And congratulations on this film and best of luck with the awards. Thank you so much, Ken. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.